You are now listening to the April 20th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Walking Our Talk, Grace Upon Grace, and it's time to pray the Bible. First, let's begin with Walking Our Talk. Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller. In this podcast series, Alan and I will discuss material adapted from our book, The Marital Mystery Tour. Join us as we share practical steps to put into action God's principles from His Word, one step at a time. So, Polly, welcome back to Walking Our Talk and getting a chance to go through this estate that we started out with called the Marital Mystery Tour. And Mr. Michaels, in the book that we wrote, um, takes us around the estate. And you wanted to talk about how do we build out this friendship room and what does that look like? Yes. Well, Alan, when we uh, wrote this book and our publisher said, well, let's design your book cover. Right. The graphic designer came up with a beautiful graphic that shows a, a mansion behind these beautiful ornate gates. And above the, the gates is written your marriage on a beautiful crest with a crown above it. And these gates are swinging wide open, revealing this mansion and with the grounds beyond manicured and everything yes it's it's really beautiful and it has the sense of you are very wealthy you own this beautiful property Mm -hmm. and that's the idea i wanted to get across as as i kind of did the wordsmithing on this book i wanted people to understand that our marriage makes us rich that we have this beautiful estate, whether we live in a small apartment or a big house, no matter how much money we have, it has nothing to do with money. It has to do with the wealth that we have in our relationship with each other. And so just by being in a marriage, we have inherited from God a beautiful estate that makes us very wealthy. And so as Mr. Michaels, who is really supposed to be an angelic being, as he takes us on our tour of our estate and we we drive in our limousine beyond the gates and enter this mansion, within the mansion there's a beautiful room that's very welcoming and very comfortable, big easy chairs, fire in the fireplace, wood paneling on the walls. A place you'd want to cozy up to. A place where you can be just yourselves. Mm. You can kick off your shoes, you can curl up on the couch, you can play games, you can just relax and be comfortable with each other. And that's the friendship aspect of our marriage that I'm hoping that we can develop. We, you and I, of course, as a couple, but we, (laughs) as listeners, that you as couples can also develop this place where you're just really comfortable with each other. So one of the things we have uh, 
in again in our workshop that we do with the marital mystery tours, we talk about a fellow named Myron Rush wrote a book called Hope for Hurting Relationships, and I thought many of the points that he had for building out this friendship were helpful. Uh, all relationships. The first point is all relationships revolve around personal needs. In other words, everyone needs other people. Uh, there was a movie, uh, Rocky, the Rocky series, and we call it the Rocky Gap Theory, which is, you know, yo, Adrian, you fill my gaps, you know. <laughs> and so many times we fill the gaps of each other. And then uh, contact alters relationships. So if you have lots of time together, which What's interesting is we get married because we want to spend time together. Then we, the man is working, the woman is either a homemaker or she's working as well, and we're like two ships in the night, and we don't get any time with each other that's really talking about feelings or things that we really care about. It's more about all the responsibilities we have, and we're so tired, I call it dishrag uh, dating, where you know, you're a dishrag, I'm a dishrag. We know we're supposed to spend time with each other, but we can't even lift our head off the floor. <laughs> you know, I want to go back to that idea of filling each other's gaps because we all have needs and we all have differences in our personalities. Uh, I tend to be a bit of an introvert, and so I'm naturally attracted to people who are more extroverted. And that fills my gap, that fills for me that need to be a little bit more outgoing and bold and to take some of that initiative. I, I draw energy from more energetic people in a relationship. I know um, one of the things I mentioned to you the other day is how I appreciate how um, optimistic you are, that when you start new things and you love to start new things, that you are a driving force in our relationship with each other because you're a starter and I, I am, I'm more of a maintainer. And so where you get a lot of energy when you're starting something new and I'm afraid to start new things. But once you get something new started... Then you end up finishing it, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, I'm the maintainer because when you get into the maintenance phase, you start to flag. It's mm. like, oh, I just hate this part of it. And so we fill each other's gaps in that way. You're optimistic and positive. I'm more... Um, uh, cautious and worried about all the things that could go wrong <laughs> with something. And so we fill each other's gaps in that way as well. That's right. So the first one was uh, relationships revolve around personal needs. The next was contact alters relationships. In other words, you need to have contact with each other, whether it's in a marriage or a friendship. If you're not seeing each other, if you're not talking about meaningful things, then pretty soon the relationship is over. And then three, the depth of relationship is directly proportional to the quality and quantity of time spent with the other person. So our depth of relationship, when we're looking for intimacy, not just in a physical way, but intimacy meaning I know you, you know me, we have a very close uh, relationship, uh, but there has to be quality as well as quantity. 
In other words, what you're spending time doing is just as important as how much time you're spending. And so somebody says, hey, it's really not the quantity of time, it's the quality that I have with you. And so I have an hour and I put all my energy into that hour. But if you went to a restaurant and you like steak and you got this big piece of steak, at least your partner gets a big piece of steak and then they serve you this little one inch by one inch, but it's really quality, uh, <laughs> I don't think you'd appreciate it. So. Well, and that that's part of the danger, again, of both people having um, high-stress jobs or even if your job isn't high-stress, you have – you, you're employed and you're spending time with other people in, a, a, in another setting outside of the home. And it's very easy just because of the amount of time that, that you spend in your job to actually have closer relationships with people at work than well, you have a, with your own because spouse. Because you spend so much time in – and I think this is very funny in our country – Basically, they put uh, firemen, they put uh, female and men uh, together in a police car, and they wonder why (laughs) affairs happen and why things get turned around and marriages fail because I'm spending adrenalized, very life-and-death-type situations. I'm going through those with somebody I don't even know that has a whole nother family or whatever, but we get really close because we're experiencing something that uh, adrenalizes us. It's exciting. And then I have to go home and we have to, you know, take out the trash and make the bed and deal <laughs> with the kids. And, you know, that's uh, that's that maintenance mode that you were talking about. Right, right. And especially if a husband comes home and the wife says, well, how was your day? And he's tired. And the, the most he can say is it was fine. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't really want to tell her about the ups and downs that he's gone through, especially if something is still uh, not complete. You know, he's in the middle of something and he just doesn't want to talk about the worries or the anxieties that he's feeling. And so he's, he kind of holds that in. So she doesn't really know what's going on right. in his life. And he doesn't really want to hear about all of the stuff that she's gone through in the course of her day because he doesn't have the capacity. I don't need another problem in my life. Right, right. So, so they both feel sort of isolated. Well, from and each that's other. why we put together our little booklet on Triple R Weekend Recreation, Romance, and Renewal. We have a, a booklet on our website where we talk about how to get away with a purpose and make sure you get some time to just have fun together and enjoy each other's company as well as plan for the future and taking regular breaks, whether it be once a week or once every other week for a date night or whether it's once a quarter or twice a year where you take two or three days to just get away just to remind yourselves that you love each other. Uh, Those have been very helpful for people that we've worked with. And and it's important even on a daily basis to reconnect with each other after you've been out of the house uh, and you come back together at the end of a work day. How do you do that? How do you um, stay connected with each other? Because uh, we have a friend who confessed to us uh, just – 
telling us about how in his daily habit of coming home, the first thing he would do would be go to get his mail and then sit down with his newspaper and sort of... Deal with the kids. Yeah, he just wanted to uh, have a little letdown time to veg out and to just not have to deal with anything. And so those first few minutes of getting home were telling his family that he wasn't really interested in them. (laughs) He he was telling his wife, not verbally, but by his actions, saying, you're not my number one priority. I'm being very selfish right now. I just want to look at the mail. Well, and that's why the traditions of coming home and giving a hug, not just a peck on the cheek and a hug and then leave, but to, to be purposeful, intentional about how you connect, and maybe he does need a half hour to veg, but before he does that, he needs to have a tradition of something that he does that says, I am so glad I'm home, I'm glad you're here, I appreciate you, I love you, now let me get my half hour to veg. Right, right, and but I think, a, I think a wife that. needs to respect that, and that it's one of those things that a couple needs to talk about, how do we reconnect with each other at the end of the day? And uh, can we look into each other's eyes? Can we give each other a meaningful touch, a hug, uh, uh, something that says, you're so important to me. I'm so glad you're back home and we're with each other. And an exercise you might do, just as this is a practical sort of aside, is just ask your spouse, ask your partner, What is it that I can do that makes you feel loved and cared for when I come home? Right. Or like in our lives, the end of the day uh, in the evening when we're going to bed has become a whole different routine than it was 30 years ago. Uh, We've been married 43 years. but, you know, now you, uh, you have MS, you have a hard time falling asleep, you need to read your Kindle, and so the light's on, and that disturbs me, and we have to figure <laughs> out how do we deal with this. Right. And at times I felt, you know, she's just isolating for me. Well, you were, you were isolating because that's the way you needed to fall asleep. But if we intentionally connect before then... Right. And I realize, okay, now we're in bed and she's having to go through her routine that tends to make me feel isolated, but you scratch my back, I go, oh, at least we're connected a little bit here. Yeah, in my mind, in that situation, we need to do our connecting before we get into bed. There needs to be meaningful touch, talking before that time because for me to get a good night's sleep, I need to prepare myself for sleep as I get into bed. So getting into bed is not my time to connect with you. And, uh, and it's one 30 of years things, ago, it used to be. It was. We were a lot younger. <laughs> <laughs> sleep came easy. All right. So we're talking about the five laws of interpersonal relationships by Myron Rush. And so we were talking about time and time spent with each other. The fourth one is fulfilled needs build relationships. So, you know, in order to have a relationship that works, there's something that I do for you. There's something you do for me. We, we have learned to gain uh, friendships with couples 
where, you know, there are things that they do for us that make us feel good. And we also have something to give them. And so they like spending time. But even with those couples that we want to spend time with, we still have to be intentional and learn how to put it on the schedule. This is true even in a couple's relationship. We need to learn to plan to get what I sometimes call planned spontaneity, that we have these three hours that we're marking out when, whenever we can get together, and, and we talk about what do we want to do? Where can we go that puts life into our marriage, or what can we do? It might be just going for a walk in the park, or it might be going for a drive. We've been known to just go uh, an hour, a drive for an hour just to get a Dairy Queen and a Starbucks just to get us out of the house, have a drive together, be able to talk about, you know, fun things and then sit down and have a cup of coffee together. And uh, uh, for me, it's a freeze, uh, you know, a milkshake type thing. And then we drive back home and it's refreshing. Yes, it, that's true. And it's time for us to talk and and just be together doing something that's fun and relaxing as we go together. I also like to go for walks. I enjoy the rhythm of a walk. We live in a nice neighborhood where there's a park near our house. And just to get out of our house, away from anything that says, this needs to be done. You should be dusting or vacuuming right. or doing so dishes. Your need is to go for a walk. But if I played racquetball at five o'clock in the or six o'clock these days in the in the morning, sometimes my feet hurt and I don't want to go for a walk. But if we can choose a time where my you know the day after I play, uh, where we can take a walk and we're intentional, we fulfill a need. You have a need to get away from the house and all the things you do. I have a need to be with you and just be able to talk in doing things that uh, – talking about things that are not necessarily life and death but just hanging out with each right. other. So but fulfill needs, build relationship. Right, right. And then the opposite is true. Unfulfilled needs will erode a relationship. And so uh, when our needs aren't met, we begin to focus – on ourselves, and we start to right. get selfish. We withdraw from those who refuse to meet our needs. We become defensive or afraid. We can even feel rejected. Well, if you never went for a walk with me, if you never sat down and talked with me, if you never gave me the eye contact that I desire or did uh, kind of fun things with me, then that would not be meeting a need that I have for connection. Then I would feel like, well, I, you know, all you really need is a, a, a servant <laughs> to fix your meals or to, uh, to meet your sexual needs. And then I start to feel unappreciated right. in my life. I, I have a need to be appreciated. And another need that I have, as you know, is to have uh, somebody help me do things. So I feel really love when really I get love you, when you somebody to clean the house, <laughs> oh, yeah. or I do it, or you help me make the bed, or clean up the kitchen, or or do things that are helpful to me. So as we close out this time, I just want to ask a couple of questions of you, the listener. What used to draw you together to feel like friends besides physical attraction? What used to draw you together 
to feel like friends. Talk about that. And what would you like to do now to help develop your friendship with each other? And uh, I guarantee you, you'll have some good conversation with that. So next time, we hope to be talking about the next part of our five keys, and we'll talk a little bit about commitment. So we'll look forward to seeing you next time with Walking Our Talk. This has been Walking Our Talk with Alan and Polly Heller, where we put into action those principles we know from God's Word, one step at a time. You can find more help at our website, walkandtalk.org. up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Blind Spot. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. Genesis, first book in the Bible, chapter 28, and while you're turning, I want us to think about blind spots going on in Genesis. You have Abraham and Isaac both lying about their wives saying they're their sisters. You have polygamy, multiple wives in these stories. You have competitive, spiteful childbearing through multiple wives. This was not God's design. Genesis 2, 24 was clear about God's design for marriage. A man shall leave his father, mother, and shall hold fast to one wife. They They will become one flesh. You have Noah, the blameless one who was spared the flood, getting totally wasted right after the flood. You have Lot in an incestuous relationship with his daughters. 
You have all kinds of people being mistreated, misled, you have blatant sin, deception by patriarchs of faith. Jacob's very name means cheater or conniver. How about that for a founder in the faith? We've only made it through about 30 chapters of the Bible and one truth is abundantly clear. People are messed up. People sin in ways they don't even see. People just like you and just like me. So let's just go ahead and get it out on the table today. We are all messed up. It's good to realize like we are all prone to sin in ways we don't even see. We all have blind spots. Coming into this week, I did not know what text we were going to dive into today. But as I was praying all week long, just asking God, what are you saying to us, the churches, we're reading through these passages? And I saw these stories unfold. And I saw sin in my life that I was blind to. I couldn't help but to think that maybe God desires to uncover some blind spots among us. Lives individually, maybe even as a church. So what I want to do Next few minutes, I want to hone in on one episode in Jacob's life that we're actually in the middle of reading about. So we're going to start in Genesis 28, which we've already read, and then we're going to end in Genesis 35, which we're scheduled to read tomorrow. And I want to show you three truths about blind spots that we need to learn from Jacob's life. And you don't have notes written out for you this week on the back of that page you received when you came in. Honestly, because Tuesday of this week, when it was time to turn those in, I had no idea where we'd be going. But I think it'll be pretty simple to write these down. And I want to encourage you to write these down. And then I want to encourage you to reflect on blind spots that may need uncovering in your life right now. And maybe among us as a church. All right, so let's start in Genesis 28. Let me set up the context. So in Genesis 27, through deception... Jacob basically steals the blessing from Isaac, his father, that was intended for Esau, his brother. Esau was not happy. He vowed to kill Jacob. That's when Jacob decided time to take a vacation away from home. So he packed his things, began a trip toward a place called Haran, where his uncle lived. That's where we pick up in Genesis 28, verse 10. Listen to what it says. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east to the north and to the south, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now let's pause for a moment here because that is one stout promise. God had made a similar promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15, and then Isaac in Genesis 26. In fact, our memory verse, this last week was God's promise to Isaac in Genesis 26. So I'm going to put it up here on the screen for us to read out loud together. And if you've memorized it, try not to look at the screen. So close your eyes, look down, wherever, try to say it, but then we'll all say it together. Genesis 26, verse 4, God said to Isaac, 
I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and will give your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Well done. Now, when God says this to Jacob in Genesis 28, it's a particularly stout promise because Jacob was a single guy at this point. So he didn't even have a wife yet. And God promises to give him kids like the dust of the earth. And then God says, I'm going to bring you back to this land where you are lying right now. So listen to how Jacob responds. Verse 16, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is nothing than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, which means house of God. The name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace and the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. So follow this. It's pretty simple. Jacob receives this promise from God, sets up an altar in this place. He says, this place where I slept last night is going to be God's house, Bethel. And I'm going to come back here. And Bethel is where Jacob says, I'm coming back to this place. Pretty simple. So what happens in Genesis 29 is Jacob makes the journey up to Haran. And a long and twisted story that we don't have time to go into today, he ends up amassing a large family with many sons, a daughter, and a ton of possessions. And eventually, does, Jacob decides to come back, just like God had promised to him and just like he had promised to God. So turn me over now to Genesis 33. Fast forwarding here about 20 years, listen to what happens in verse 18. The Bible says, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Blind spots often seem small and subtle. 20 miles short. Jacob was almost there to the place God had told him to come back to, to the place he had told God he was going to come back to. There was good business there, good opportunities for making money, increasing possession. So he buys a plot of ground. Just put yourself in Jacob's shoes. Imagine his thought process. I'm close enough, right? It's not like I'm going off here or there to the north or to the east. I'm within 20 short miles. It's not that big a deal. This is the way sin works in all of our lives, particularly sin that we don't want to see. I'm not doing that bad, right? I mean, I could be doing a lot worse. Just think back to the slavery example. Like, I don't treat my slaves as bad as other people do. Or 100 years later with Jim Crow laws, it's not like black people are slaves anymore. It's just a different water fountain. Fast forward to today. We're drinking out of the same water fountains. Racism is a thing of the past all while we ignore racial injustice in the present, here and around the world. Do you see this tendency in our lives? And again, slavery, racism, that's just one example. In so many facets of our lives, we are tempted to stop short and settle for less than all God has called us to. 
And to think it's not a big deal because it could be worse. It's not like I'm sleeping around. I'm just looking at some images on my phone. It's just thoughts I entertain. I'm not actually acting on them. Let's be honest with each other. We are so desensitized to sexual immorality that it doesn't shock us to watch it on a screen or indulge in it in our lives. We could be worse, right? So other areas, gossip. Who doesn't? It's almost like the air we breathe in ways we don't even recognize. Materialism, it's our way of life. It's normal. Prioritize spending on ourselves. Give so relatively little to those in urgent need. And the picture is not just things we do, but things we stop short of doing. That's the whole picture here. I think about singles. God's call to purity and holiness and single-minded devotion to him. Again, you could be a lot worse. I think about married men and women tempted to stop short of loving and caring for and serving and nurturing our spouses as God has called us to. Parents tempted to stop short of teaching our kids to pray and study God's word and prioritize what really matters in the world. And we justify not praying with them or reading the Bible with them or prioritizing things that really matter because, well, I mean, we could be a lot worse. Children tempted to disobey parents in small, subtle ways, right? It's not that big a deal. Like we could go on listing examples all day long, but do you see the strategy of Satan in your life? In our lives, Satan does not normally come to us and tempt us to just immediately jump off the deep end. Instead, he tempts us to stop this short. Because the reality is, if he can get you to stop this short at this point, he can get you to stop a little shorter before long. You're in a place where you're wondering, how did I get here? Blind spots often seem small and subtle, like they're no big deal. And did you notice the first thing Jacob does when he stops short? He buys this piece of land in Shechem. He sets up an altar and he calls it El Elohe Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. Here is Jacob living in disobedience, stopping short of what God has told him to do, what he told God he would do. And the first thing he does is he sets up an altar. Please don't miss this. You might write this down. Religion is the biggest cover-up, disobedience in our lives. All throughout the Bible then, we have mastered the art of religious activity before God, devoid of relational obedience to God. See it in church-going slave owners in the past. See it in the rampant materialism across the church in the present. See it in every single one of our lives. We can actually fool ourselves into thinking we're doing all right as long as we're in church as long as we pray, read the Bible here and there, as long as we have some semblance of religious activity, when the reality is God is not interested in our religion. God is interested in our obedience. God does not desire. He's actually sickened by our songs and our prayers when they are disconnected from the surrender of our lives. So let's ask ourselves today, like right now, in services where we're singing and praying, like, let's just stop for a minute and ask, where am I stopping short? Where are you stopping short right now? In your life, think head, heart, hands. Like, in what ways are your thoughts not completely honoring to God? In what ways are your desires not completely pleasing to God? In what ways are your 
actions not bringing glory to God? In what ways are your relationships not reflecting God? Like how, where are you stopping short? And I ask this question not just of followers of Jesus because there are others today who are exploring Christianity and you're being tempted to stop short and say, hey, I'm a pretty good person and I'm here in church, aren't I? Like, I don't need to take this step of surrendering my life to following Jesus. I'm doing all right. And maybe some of you who might call yourself a Christian, but you've settled into a pretty casual, nominal, in-name-only Christianity that is content to give Jesus a nod here or there in your life when the reality is he is not your life. But you could be worse, right? Don't miss it. Blind spots often seem small and subtle, like they're no big deal. Leads right into the second truth we need to see. Blind spots eventually prove extremely costly. So read what happens in Shechem, just 20 miles short of Bethel. Chapter 34, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Just in case you didn't catch what just happened, Dinah was just violated by the son of the ruler in Shechem. What happens after that is Jacob actually enters into discussions with the men of Shechem, and they agree this son of the ruler wanted to be married now to Dinah. And so the men of Shechem agreed to be circumcised, which is a whole other part of the story here in Genesis that we don't have time to go into today, but it was a sign of God's help. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the men of Shechem agreed to it in order to be able to have business dealings now with all of Jacob's sons. So basically now you have an entire city faking religion to gain a business advantage which all leads to verse 25. Watch this with me. Chapter 34, verse 25. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, whatever was in the city and the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. A horrifying picture as Jacob's sons become murderers. They kill every male in Shechem. They loot the entire land. If we were to keep going, we would see by this time, Jacob's house is filled with foreign gods and idols. Do you see the picture? This is Jacob, the one who had received God's promise of blessing. His daughter has now been violated. His sons have become murderers, could have started all-out war in the land of Canaan. His house is full of idols, and it all happened because he stopped 20 miles short. No big deal, right? Ladies and gentlemen, Jacob had no idea what his blind spot, his seemingly small, subtle stopping short would cost not only him, but the people around him. I pray that God in his word today would help us to see that God would open our eyes to this same truth in our lives. You and I in this room, this is God speaking to his word. We have no idea what it will cost, not only each of us, but people around us 
when we settle for what seems like small, subtle disobedience in our lives. Just think about the examples we've mentioned. Slavery, lack of civil rights, racism was and still is extremely costly to generations of people. Materialism, the idolatry of money, the love of more possessions while ignoring the poor is extremely costly. Sexual immorality doesn't just cost you, it costs your spouse, future spouse, it costs your kids, your family. Looking at that sight, that image doesn't just affect you. It affects those closest to you. And not just people close to us, people far from us. Are there not so many people in the world today who look in the church and see pastors, leaders, professing followers of Jesus who live just like everybody else in the world, just as corrupt, just as sexually immoral, just as selfish? All they do is tack Jesus on Sundays and the world says, I don't get it and I don't really want anything to do with it. Compromise with sin is extremely costly for the display of Christ to a world that desperately needs to see his sacrificial love and his selfless life on display. Don't underestimate the cost of what seems like small, subtle sin. The Bible is filled with stories like this. We will read them. We've actually already read them. Lot's wife in Genesis 19, she simply, subtly glances back, right? When she's been told by God not to do so, all of a sudden, she's dead. It's Moses' seemingly simple, small, subtle sin in the book of Numbers that keeps him from going into the promised land. When we get to Joshua chapter seven, we'll see a man named Achan steal some possessions, hide them under his tent to keep for himself, which leads to 36 people being killed, then his whole family, his wife and children dying. Joshua seven is a potent picture of how your sin inevitably affects not only your physical family, but also your spiritual family. Your sin, my sin, our sin affects people in our home, people in our church. King David's simple, subtle glance on a rooftop one day leads to death and destruction across the entire kingdom he led. Oh God, open our eyes to the cost of compromise in our lives. Ladies and gentlemen, don't believe it. I urge you, don't believe the lie that your sin only affects you. It's not true. Hear the Bible saying loud and clear this week. It's not true. Sin, particularly the blind spots that we don't want to see, that we refuse to see, inevitably prove extremely costly to you and to people around you. Is this not heavy? Like it almost feels hopeless, but it's not. So... Here's the good news, and this is what I love about the Bible. The Bible does not shy away from hard realities in this world. The Bible does not paint a glossy picture disconnected from our experience. The Bible is true to the hard, messed up realities of life, but it doesn't leave us there. The Bible leads us to hope. Thankfully, this story in Jacob's life doesn't end with the cost of compromise in Genesis 34. Genesis chapter 35, verse one. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. 
So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel because this, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Is anybody today here thankful to worship a God who gives second chances. When God, by his grace, opens our eyes, blind spots can become new starts. When God, by his grace, opens our eyes, blind spots can become new starts. God comes to Jacob and he says, it's time for a new start. Clean a house, get rid of the foreign gods you are worshiping, and go to the place I told you I'd take you. And don't miss the beauty of this passage. Did you catch verse 3? Jacob said, let us arise and go to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. Don't miss it. This is such good news. This is our hope for all who trust in God. Even when we stop short, even when we compromise with sin, the holy God of the universe answers us in the day of our distress. He is with us. He has been with us the whole time. In the middle of our disobedience, hear this good news. In the middle of our disobedience, even then God does not abandon us. This is grace. This is the gospel. This is the greatest news in all the world. God has not left sinners alone in their sin. God is not just with us. He came to be with us in the person of Jesus. Jesus paid the price for us. Jesus died on the cross for all of our stopping short, for all of our stopping way short. Jesus has died for all of our sin. He's made a way for us, no matter how far we've stopped short. Jesus has made a way for us to be forgiven of our sin, cleansed of all of our sin, and restored to right relationship with God. All glory be to Jesus. All glory be to the God who does not abandon us in our sin. All glory be to the God who saves us from our sin, purifies us from it. God says to Jacob, get up and leave this behind. Come and experience all that I've designed for you. God says to us, you don't have to live in your sin. You don't have to stay 20 miles short or 200 miles short. I will lead you to experience that which is best for you. Let me open your eyes to see sin in your heart and your life and let me lead you to experience the full abundant life I have created for you. And it is indeed abundant. Look at what happens in verse nine. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, verse 10, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. God says to Jacob, you're you're no longer going to be called Jacob, cheater, conniver. You now have a new name, Israel, one who strives with God. God gives him a new name. Don't miss this in your life. It's not the exact same as Jacob. God doesn't change your name to Israel. But when you come to God and you trust in his grace, when you put your faith in Jesus as the savior of your sin, you surrender your life to him, God says, you are no longer named guilty. You are now named righteous. You are no longer called slave to sin. You are now called free from sin. You are no longer headed toward eternal death. You now have eternal life. You are no longer called condemned before God. You are now called a child 
of God. No longer named sinner. You are now named a son or daughter of God. God gives us a new name and he gives us new life. Keep going in verse 11. God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you and will give the land to your offspring after you. And God went out from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Jacob had no idea what God had in store for him if only he would get to Bethel. Nations will come from you. Kings shall come from your own body. What does that mean? Well, we'll see it in the next week or so. Because in Genesis 49, we're going to read about how one of Jacob's sons, Judah, receives a promise that one day from his line will come a king to whom all nations will bow. And in the rest of the story over the course of this year, a king named David will come from the line of Judah. And later in the year, through the line of King David, will eventually come a king named Jesus. Jacob had no idea what God was going to do in and through his line. If only he'd get to Bethel. But think about it. Play what if for a second. What if there in Shechem, where Jacob had stopped, Dinah had been violated, his sons had become murderers. What if they had started all that war in the land of Canaan? What if Jacob's family had been put in major jeopardy at that point? What if something had happened to Judah? Without Judah, you don't have the line of David. Without the line of David, you don't have the line that leads to Jesus. Without Jesus, every sinner, including you and me, dies in separation from God's salvation. Now, obviously, that's not how the story unfolds. Praise God, he is sovereign in accomplishing his purpose to save sinners. But don't miss the whole picture. From the beginning of the Bible, Jacob had no clue what God would do in and through him if only he would get to Bethel. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm convinced that you have no idea what God wants to do in and through your life if only you will give yourself to him and all that he is calling you to do. Me to do, us to do together. Like, I want to experience, I so want to experience all that God wants to do in and through my life. Don't you want to experience all that God who created you knows what is best for you, what he has designed you to experience in your life? Don't we want to experience together as a church all that God wants to do in and through us? Like, we don't want to settle for this monotonous, religious, casual routine. Don't we want to be a part of something so much greater than ourselves here in Metro D.C., around the world? Don't we want to experience God's grace to the fullest extent we can and spread God's glory to the farthest ends of the earth? Now let's do it. Let's not stop short. Let's ask God to open our eyes to blind spots in our lives. Let's ask God to help us see sin that we don't want to see. Please don't miss this. I'll hit this really quick, but it's really important. Two major barriers. As I was praying through this, to God opening our eyes to blind spots in our lives. One is isolation. Isolation from true, biblical, multifaceted fellowship in the body of Christ. One of the reasons we don't see blind spots is because we don't have other brothers or sisters in Christ around us who will help us see them. And I would say in particular, brothers and sisters who are different from us, ethnically, socioeconomically, at different ages and stages of life, who will help us see. If we isolate ourselves or even surround ourselves with and listen to only people who look like us and think like us, then we will be much more prone to live with blind spots. We need to be 
in true biblical multifaceted fellowship where we're listening to and learning from people who are different from us with humility. Which leads to the second major barrier to seeing blind spots in our lives. Pride. As I, as I have prayed for you coming into today, my biggest fear is that some of you will hear this word from God today and you will walk away saying, I don't have blind spots in my life. I don't want to see blind spots in my life. I'm fine in Shechem. Not too far off. Or some will say, I'm so far off, so far short. I'm so far from Bethel. I don't even know where to begin. I just want to urge you. Whether you are one mile short or 1,000 miles short, I want to urge you to say to God today, I want to experience all that you have for me. Please open my eyes to sin I don't want to see. Please keep my pride from getting in the way. Please open my eyes to sin that I need to see in my life. Please grant me the humility to hear and then the courage and the faith to leave it behind, to trust in you and by your grace to experience all that you have for me. Oh, would you say that to God today? Just think about even examples we've used today. Like, God, rid us of any and all racism in our hearts and minds. Make us the multicultural, multi-ethnic, multifaceted church you desire for us to be. Help us to live for justice in a world where racism remains a reality. God, rid us of materialism. Make us the sacrificial, generous, compassionate, selfless people you desire for us to be, spreading your grace in a world of urgent need. God, make us the husbands and the wives and the parents and the children and the single men and women you've called us to be in a confused world. God, cause our thoughts to be completely aligned with your thoughts. God, cause our desires to be completely aligned with your desires. God, cause our actions to look more and more like Jesus. God, uncover our blind spots and cause us to be and do all that you've called and created us to be and do. So here's how I want to close. I want to give you just a moment to pause and to reflect. I want to invite you to pray and Ask God if, now some of you already know, it's clear in your life, even as we've walked through this word, the Spirit of God has been opening your eyes to places where you're stopping short. Some of you need to just stop and say, God, what sin do I need to see in my life? And I want to invite you to take a couple of minutes, right where you are, to write out your reflections. There in your notes, or maybe on a device you have, maybe to write. Maybe it's, God, please forgive me for, and then you just fill in the blank. Or maybe it's, God, I want to do this or that that you're calling me to do. Help me to do this or that that I know you're calling me to do or to stop doing this or that that I know you're calling me not to do. Maybe it's to say for the first time truly to God, I want to trust in Jesus to forgive me of my sin. I want to follow Jesus as Lord of my life. Pray that that new start might happen. Like hear that final truth. When God by his grace opens our eyes, blind spots can become new starts. So what does a new start need to look like for you today. In light of the fact that God is the author of new starts, I think it's pretty awesome for us just to spend a few minutes before him all across this room just saying, God, what new starts need to happen in our hearts and lives? You just pray accordingly. So I want to invite you just to begin spending that time right now with him. You know, one of the things I was thinking about, you might be hesitant to write down certain things where you're stopping short or sin because you got people around you, which obviously they shouldn't be looking at what you're writing. Stay focused on what you got. But even, even if you still don't write, just put a star or something like you and God know what's, what's going on there. God, I, I confess this to you. Let me just invite us to do this right now. Like, we're not just going through religious motion Sunday after Sunday. Like, this is, 
we're before a holy God right now and he's speaking a trust to us. Like, how do we need to respond? So let me invite you to start to respond now just between you and God where you're sitting. And then after a few minutes, I'll close this in prayer. Oh God, we need you. We need your help. We are all, and I put myself at the front of the line, we're all prone to stop short in so many different ways. We need you to save us from ourselves, to save us from what we think is best, what we think is good, what we think is wise, instead of trusting what you say is best and what you say is good and what you say is wise. And you to save us from our impulse to do this or that that is not glorifying to you. God, please help us. Just, and we praise you even as we pray this, we praise you that you answer us in the day of our distress. You are with us, that you have come to be with us. Jesus, we praise you for coming to pay the price for all of our sin. And not only to die for it so we can be forgiven of it, but to set us free from it. We trust your promise today that we don't have to stay in Shechem. That these sin, even sin that feels like so controlling in our lives that it doesn't have control over us when we are in you that you have given us victory over sin. So God, we pray that we would experience it. Help us to walk in that victory. Help us to go with you to Bethel to experience all that you have for us in our lives. God, I pray for that. My own life, I pray for that for every single person sitting. God, we pray for that for us as a church. We want to experience all that you have for us individually and together as a church. So help us to trust you. Give us humility to see sin we don't want to see, to turn from it, and by your grace to run into all that you have created us for and called us to. May it be so, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their lives. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. The program includes Let's Read the Bible, Praise Time, Pray Time, and Story Time. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English-speaking children. Our office number is 602-866-8999. An email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. Coming up next is It's Time to Pray the Bible. Hello, my name is Deborah Joy. I am the host of this program. It's time to pray the Bible. Recently, I visited my family in California and had a wonderful afternoon at the beach. Since I have always been a lover of nature, I got so excited about what I was about to experience through the beauty of creation. With expectation in my heart, I began walking on the pier towards the beach. 
when I arrived at the end of it, I was totally captivated by its spectacular and vast beauty. As I gazed into the magnificent sunset above the horizon, I was suddenly reminded of the immeasurable and endless love of God from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, which says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Today's first scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth drives its name, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. The Greek word for know in verse 19 is ginosko, which means to come to know, recognize, and to understand completely. From this context, we can learn that God longs for us to know His love deeply through our personal experience with Him. The second scripture reading is from Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The text in verse 37 used the Greek word hupernikao, which means to be more than a conqueror and to gain a surpassing victory, implies Christ's love has made us hyper-conquerors and empowered to be unrivaled. Are you ready to praise God for blessing us to know His love intimately and making us eminently victorious? Let's pray. Father, we are forever grateful for your love. Because of your great love, long before you laid the foundation of the universe, you chose us to be your very own, to be made whole and holy by your love and grace. Lord, we kneel humbly in awe before you. 
You are the perfect father of every family in heaven and earth. We pray that you would unveil within us the unlimited riches of your magnificent glory and favor until supernatural strength floods our innermost being with your divine might and explosive power. Then the life of Christ will be released deep inside us and the resting place of your love will become the very source and root of our life. Lord, empower us by your Spirit so we can discover what every Holy One experiences, the great magnitude of the astonishing love of Christ in all its dimensions, how deeply intimate and far-reaching is your love, how enduring and inclusive it is, endless love beyond measurement that transcends our understanding. This extravagant love pours into us until we are filled to overflowing with the fullness of God. Lord, you have made us to be more than conquerors, and your demonstrated love is our glorious victory over everything. We are convinced that your love will triumph over death, life, angels, or dark rulers in the heavens. There's nothing in our present or future circumstances that can weaken your love. God, we live with a confidence that there is no power above us or beneath us. No power that could ever be found in the universe that can separate us from your eternal love, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Everlasting Father, we give you all the glory. You are the Lord who will accomplish infinitely more than our greatest request, our most unbelievable dream, and exceed our wildest imagination. You'll outdo them all, for your miraculous power constantly energizes us. Now we offer up to you, mighty God, all the glorious praise that rises from every church in every generation through Jesus Christ forever and ever. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Father's love for us How vast beyond all measure That He should give His only Son To make a wretch's treasure 
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.